Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self-defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jalakor-Rude. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur-Rude, and today I am excited to bring on the show Wendy Keir. Wendy has spent her whole life recovering from the traumatic after effects of being institutionalized in the United Kingdom's care system. She believes that healing from emotional and traumatic scars is an inside-out job. The path to successful, ongoing recovery And to breaking the cycle starts with your relationship with yourself and others, how you perceive the world around you, and changing your inner world. I am so excited to dive into this conversation. So welcome to the show, Wendy. Thanks for having me, Cynthia. So excited. I'm just, I have so many questions and I know I have a lot to learn about trauma. It's, It's kind of the thing that I am really trying to learn more about this year because it really influences everything for a person who has experienced it. And uh, as a self-defense coach, of course, the odds of me having somebody in a class or in a program who has experienced some kind of violence and trauma is extremely high. And so I, I love when I get to talk to somebody like you, who not only has had experience of her own, but also can really speak to recovery, because I think that is something that is not widely spoken about, and it's desperately needed. So I'm so grateful that you are coming on the show today to really share your story and some insights and to provide some resources to other women. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, I'd like to start with some warm-up questions to kind of get us in the groove. So are you ready for that? I'm ready. (laughs) Fire away. Okay. What is your favorite animal? Oh, cat. (laughs) <laughs> like domestic cat yeah domestic cat i've got um two cats that i love and uh yeah i had two cats when i was back in the uh the uk definitely a cat i can relate i've got four no so. <laughs> what do you like most about living in thailand freedom the level of freedom i have i can I have so much freedom here because I run my own business. I can choose when I want to work and freedom to, you know, it's a, it's a very, there's a lot less people here. So you just naturally feel more free. Also, I'm on the edge of the, well, I'm on the edge of the jungle, pretty much in the jungle. That gives you a sense of space and freedom as, as well. So it's that freedom of movement and how relaxed it is here. Whereas back home is very intense. Everyone's moving. No one's really staying still. I have the opportunity to really sit still here and feel that I'm freer. Yeah, that's wonderful. That I think I have a similar sense after my move out of Silicon Valley up into the Sierra foothills, you know, where <laughs> the population is sparse compared to Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, and like you, I'm, I'm up in nature. You can hear you've got birdies chirping yeah. in the background. So are those birds of the jungle? They are birds of the jungle. Indeed. Awesome. I don't know what they are, actually. But yeah, <laughs> they are birds <laughs> of the jungle. 
<laughs> oh, that's awesome. And, and just that sense of space to, you know, to not have to constantly be navigating through crowds and dealing with all the energy of lots of people. I, I can really resonate with that. Yeah. Yeah. I get, I get sensory, I can get sensory overwhelm quite easy. And I was talking about this yesterday with a friend, sensory overwhelmed quite easily by lots of other people around me. It almost becomes too much to have. To handle, I then have to go away and, you know, chill out for a couple of days. Oh, awesome. Well, what is your favorite self-care practice? Ooh, I love to meditate. I am a big fan of meditation. I also do deep breathing exercises. Plus, I do journaling a lot. And I also love to do every other day is like is a face ice bath and hands and feet although i'm not very good at my hands so i have quite i have quite a rigid self-care ritual now never used to but in the last year or so probably last couple of years i've really developed a i guess i call it a grounding ritual routine to bring me more into my body because i'm one of those people that is constantly in my head I find it quite hard to actually sync and connect the body and the head together. So I have to do it consciously. Oh, I I love that. I'm I'm really curious. I've never heard of doing like an ice bath for your face or for your extremities. I've done like full on ice bath things, which were (laughs) quite a challenge. Um, But (laughs) what what is it about about the hands, feet and the face? I'm I'm really curious about that. Yeah. It's just really to feel an intense sensation in other parts of my body. The face I do more for my skin, to look after my skin, but the hands and the feet. So I start with the face, I move down to the hands, and then I move down to the feet. I don't think I could, well, I couldn't manage here anyway, logistically, but I don't think I'd be able to cope with a full-on ice bath every other day. So this is like a shortened version. And Wim Hof, who is, who's into all the ice baths and breathing, who I absolutely adore, he says, you know, you can do your face, you can do your hands, you can do your feet. So I do that learning from Wim Hof in terms of the breathing and the ice bath. Oh, that's cool. And, and I like that you've developed, you know, a, a ritual or a rhythm, a uh, routine for self care. Uh, because I think that sometimes it's easy to just not do it if it's all impromptu or if you feel like you're having to come up with something every day that's new. And yeah. when you find the things that you really love and that, that really feel good and you make them a regular practice, it's much easier to stick with it. So I, I love that you have developed yeah. that. I also, um, I talk about it in the book as part of a grounding routine before you're going to do any emotional work. So you are consciously doing the routine to help you ground yourself before you step into doing things emotionally. So you're more connected. So you're less likely to be emotionally triggered, start acting out. So it's just a nice routine before you but it's a conscious thing you have to make a conscious commitment and effort to doing it but i talk about it in the book quite a bit 
Awesome. Well, we're going to get to talking about your book in a little while. But before that, I have another another question. <laughs> I have a lot of questions for you today. Uh, <laughs> cool. What you advice <laughs> What advice would you give to young women in their 20s that you wish that you'd known when you were that age? Ooh, gosh. It used to be about money. What you believe about money is true. But it's moved on from that now. And I think it would have to be that you are more in control of the decisions you make than you think you are. So it's really about becoming in tune with the way you are thinking, what you're, what you're believing, and consciously making a decision rather than just snapping and making a decision like we normally do, is to really explore why it is you think the way you do for you to be able to, I mean, I liken it to peak performance, but just so you can get the best out of life, you're not working on an automatic program that isn't serving you. So it would really be the self-development, but it would really be focused in on enhancing your decision-making and not being controlled by your emotional baggage. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's that's really great because I think often it takes you know, decades to realize that that actually is important. Yeah. So that could save a whole lot of struggle and trouble. Yeah. It can change your life for the better. Yeah. That's, that's great. Thank you. So uh, tell me about your background. Like where did you grow up and, and what was that like? Yeah. My background is quite chaotic. It's very traumatic. I was removed from my parents when I was two, along with my brother, for neglect. My um, alcoholic parents had this really bad habit of going out drinking and then forgetting that they had children and would leave them around the place and forget them. So oh we, we were removed. I don't remember it, thank goodness. We were removed into uh, a care. I think my brother came with me. I'm really not sure, but he was adopted when he was a baby and I was left in care because my father didn't want me to be adopted, which was incredibly selfish of him, but that's another story. We went into the first, or I went into the first children's home and that home was closed down due to neglect and abuse. So I was addicted to Valium before the age of four. I was regularly locked in a cupboard. They, it was a, a, I can vaguely remember it. I've been told a lot about it, but I can definitely remember the effect of being locked in a cupboard for sure. That's, Mm. that followed me through my journey. We went from that, I went from that children's home into another children's home where I stayed until I was 13. I think from a record, I had about over 40 foster placements. My father used to come into the children's home and kidnap me out of the children's home. So they used to have to send the police out to look for me. I was bizarrely eventually adopted at 13. And that lasted a couple of years. The parents found me too difficult to manage. So I, I would be running away. I found it really hard to settle with of the children in the household. So that didn't last very long. Went back into an assessment centre. So it all, everything started over again. Thrown out into the big wide world at 15 and a half into an abusive supportive lodgings. She 
turn off the heating, lock away the food, had a short period of homelessness. I then got a couple of apprentices jobs. But while I was doing the apprentice job, I was being abused by one of the, I was going to say members of staff, one of the owners of the business while I was doing my apprenticeship. And it just it just went on and on. I was then raped. I was attacked. I just it just didn't stop really until I met my upper half, Steve, who I've been with for twenty one years now. God, twenty one years. Oh wow, it's a long time. Twenty one yeah. years. <laughs> yeah. So I for the last three years, I've really been unraveling and starting to understand the effect. All of those traumatic experiences have had on my personality because the trauma has really consumed my identity. So I've been learning to break free and really understand actually who am I underneath that trauma. So the trauma has been coming, becoming smaller, 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 and I've been emerging and growing bigger. And the trauma has been growing smaller and smaller. It's still there. You know, I'm a work in progress. I don't believe that you can just brush it under the carpet and that's it. It's part of your identity. It's part of your personality, but it doesn't need to take over your life. Wow. So oh, yeah, you you had a little bit of pretty much everything. I think the only thing you didn't run into was war. Yeah, didn't I? Did, yeah. You know, it's really interesting that writing the book has really opened my eyes to the complexity of trauma. There are the trauma when I was younger. So I, you know, I've, I've done so many courses. I've worked in social services, worked with young people at risk for like 20 years. And the word trauma never came up. So it's like all these modern day traumas have now emerged. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, um, war, as you said, terrorism. There's a whole load of them that you think, God, I'm sure that wasn't around when I was a kid. I'm sure that wasn't around. We used to focus in on the the main four, you know, the neglect, the abuse, the main ones that people were familiar, main ones that people were familiar with. We didn't think about all of these other things that people are now experiencing. Even the pandemic for some people is becoming a trauma. All of these things that sit outside of the mainstream, what we would perceive as trauma. So, so then how, how do you define trauma or how do you characterize it? So I characterize it in terms of an event that changes your behavior. So an event that creates a, what I would call an emotional imprint within your identity. So. What happens is, is that imprint, if the brain, if you're unconscious, your ego, you know, part of who you are senses that you are, there's some danger around you, even if you're not consciously aware of it, and there isn't any danger, it will stop you from doing the thing it is that you want you to do. So for me, it is a change in behavior that wouldn't necessarily occur if it hadn't been for a previous event that has mm-hmm. been shocking it's been deep it's really really hit enough it's something that has just jolted you and in that jolt you've had an imprint of an experience 
a negative experience and then your behavior changes unconsciously and consciously to avoid that sense of danger, even though it probably doesn't exist. So it completely, it completely changes your personality. So without you so even realizing it. Does it primarily affect your mind or also mind. your body? And body, both, both. I feel it more in my head because of the abuse trauma. So I feel it more in my head and it's why I focus so much in, in grounding myself. But what can happen is, is the body can hijack the brain. And the way it has done that for me is it's meant that I've had panic attacks, anxiety attacks. So if my brain feels that I'm in, in danger or doesn't catch it, my body will stop me. So I can be thinking in my head, I'm okay, I can do this, that's fine. And my body would just go, uh-uh, nah, not doing this. I remember this, I'm not having it. And it will literally freeze me in my place and won't allow me to do something. So it's the mind and the body. And trauma shows up in a lot of illnesses for people. Although that's not my speciality. Mine is much more about emotions, but people will feel trauma in their body without realizing that it's trauma. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at sort of the outline of your, the first chapter of your book, and there were a couple of things that jumped out at me that I, if, if it's okay, I'd likely ask you about them because I know that this book is in process, but this first chapter must be absolutely amazing. Just, just judging by the outline that you shared. You mentioned something about trauma and denial. What what was that about? Yeah. It's something that you touched on earlier on, which was about traumas not really spoken about. And you're absolutely right. Trauma isn't really spoken about. I mean, in all my years, even with the mental health intervention, my, my doctor, other professionals when I was a kid, trauma, I don't ever remember trauma being mentioned. But how I how I came into denial was that I had been through so many experiences, I couldn't process them all in one go, or I couldn't think about them. Show, writing the book really showed me that I had put each experience into its own box, into its own category. So if, if I was connecting with it, I'd go into that particular box. I wouldn't connect all of the boxes together and have them as one. It just became, it became too much. And I think that created a level of denial, denial that I had been abused, denial that the rape had happened, denial of all of these different things that had happened to me. It was like I detached away from those experiences, even though I was completely consumed by them at the same time. So I was com in complete denial of that. I was in trauma and it was in affecting me the way it was affecting me because I was so busy living my life on automatic pilot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think so my mother was British. She was English and of the World War II generation. She was born in 1926. And one of the things that I remember her talking about a lot was the attitude that you know, if something happened that hurt you or injured you or upset you or, you know, any of those sorts of things, that 
the attitude that she grew up with that's a very British attitude is, oh, just get on with it. Yeah. And, you know, what I can imagine is you combine that sort of cultural thing of, you know, we're not even going to acknowledge that there's any reason for you to be in any way upset that something happened. And we're just going to tell you, you know, suck it up, buttercup, stiff upper lip and get on with it. Yeah. But you combine that with how overwhelmingly difficult it can be to let yourself admit or acknowledge that something really terrible did happen to you. And you've got, you know, basically a recipe for like long lasting unaddressed emotional injuries, you know, spiritual, psychological injuries, yeah. um, physical, physical harm. So, you know, what a, what a terrible combination of, of having so much to deal with that it's absolutely overwhelming and hard to deal with along with, I, I imagine it's very hard to see and accept when you are basically living in it. You oh, know, yeah. it's almost like with the frog in the pot, you know, <laughs> that you don't realize. Yeah. yeah. And I also didn't realize I read something the other day while I was doing some research. I didn't realize that actually trauma can be passed down to children. Mm-hmm. So if your mum's really traumatized, my mother was an alcoholic, so that would have had a, that would have had an effect on me. I don't know what her, whether she was struggling with trauma or what was happening for her, but that would have definitely had an impact of me in the womb. So I was already experiencing it before I even came out of the womb. That's another thing that. I definitely didn't realize, and if I don't realize it, other people won't realize it as well, is that mums can pass it down to their children. Mm-hmm. Oh, In that her. makes a lot of sense because if you're, if you're experiencing that and your body is in that sort of fight for your life mode all the time, you're flooded with all of those hormones related to, you know, I'm in danger, I'm in danger. You know, how could that not get through to the child? Yeah in you so it's going to be in them so yeah so how how has or, or how was the trauma affecting your life gosh if on so many levels so so many levels i couldn't establish healthy relationships with people as soon as anyone got close i'd cut them off i became a workaholic lots of people get sucked into some type of addiction Mine was work because I was so desperate not to become homeless again. I just put all my energy into work because within work, you know, you have that human connection, but it's contained. You get a paycheck so you can pay your bills. You have a focus and something that is contained within your life, but doesn't overspill into your personal life. So I became a workaholic, basically, which pushed me into burnout eventually and depression. But it would, it affects simple things like wanting to maybe go to a restaurant. So myself and my partner, when we first met, we went traveling around Southeast Asia. And of course, you're always eating in new places. But I must have drove Steve mad. We used to, I used to make him walk around so I could find somewhere where I was comfortable with. But we walk around for hours and then end up at the 7 Eleven with, like, I don't know, just little bits and pieces of stuff. So there was actually no point in us going out in the first place. (laughs) 
what was happening was subconsciously was that I was fearful of going into an unknown place, into a restaurant with a big group of people because I thought in my subconscious that I was going to be abused. So I wasn't aware of that pattern at the time. It's only in the last couple of years I've become aware of that pattern and I understand it now. But that's to the level of control that how trauma affects you. It it will stop you from doing things that uh, should be easy decisions. Going for somewhere to eat should be an easiest dis- decision. Okay, it might be complicated if you've got three places to choose from that you really like, but it should be a case of, you know, you want to just go into that restaurant, enjoy the food. Whereas for me, it was very much, uh, no, no, not that one. Let's go and check out the next one. Uh, no, not that one. Let's check out the next one. So it really impacted on my relationship with other people. It impacts on very easy decisions that I needed to make. I struggled with isolation and loneliness on one hand, but didn't know how to establish relationships on the other hand. It was just so ingrained into my DNA that it affected everything that I did. At work, I kept myself to myself. You know, I isolated myself from other team members because I didn't want to get too close. Lots and lots of different ways. Those are the ones that I think really stand out for me especially the addiction to uh, being a workaholic that really is where I put my attention was on work, you know, wanting to uh, pay the bills so I wouldn't become homeless again. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I know a lot of people who are just extreme workaholics. My, my first husband was very much like that. And I would be willing to bet that there is a reason why. You know, it's not just I like to work a lot, but but that sense that there there is an effect that is so subtle and pervasive that you don't even realize that that's what's driving your choices um, is. It's a really kind of a scary thought to realize that your choices are being controlled by something that you're not even aware of. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm a big believer now in in being as consciously aware as possible and not being on automatic pilot but i do think you need some ingredients for that which and one of them is you know slowing down actually slowing down and taking the time to really understand what makes you tick as a woman and as a mother of daughters i know that life can feel pretty damn scary and with good reason Whether you've experienced violence before or you're just aware that it's out there and it stops you from moving freely around this world, you're not alone. The numbers are not pretty. It's estimated that 35% of women worldwide have experienced either physical or sexual intimate partner violence or violence by a non-partner. The National Crime Victimization Survey reported that more than 600 women in the U.S. are raped or sexually assaulted every day. But I want you to know that you don't have to live in fear. You and your daughter can and deserve to navigate this world feeling confident, prepared, and most of all, completely capable of taking care of yourself and your loved ones because you were born ready. When you learn how to recognize and use the self-protection tools that you were born with, your innate 
built-in self-defense system, you can keep yourself safe. And I can show you how to do that. In my new program, Born Ready, the three life-saving self-defense tools for empowered women, you will get a quick, powerful introduction to key self-defense concepts and tools to jumpstart your safety. Here's just a bit of what you'll cover. The first module is all about your amazing body, how your body and brain are designed to protect you. You landed on the planet well-equipped to keep yourself safe. And yeah, we've been domesticated, but this is where you will learn how to get in touch with your built-in protection system. Module two is all about nonviolent postures. Now, most assaults do not start out of the blue with violence. They start with an interaction between two or more people that goes down the wrong path. So in this module, you discover how to stop a situation from becoming unsafe and how to keep yourself safe if it does go violent. Module three is tools and targets. It's all about how to use your human weapon tools to fight if you should ever become the victim of a true ambush, somebody attacking you with no warning, or if you become involved in a confrontation that turns violent. This is exactly what you need to lay the foundation for your personal safety so that you can begin navigating the world with confidence. This course is an investment in your safety and in the safety of your children and loved ones. It's an investment with an invaluable return, personal power, confidence, and safety. If you are interested in learning what can save your life, please click the link in the show notes or go to www.cynthiajolikerud.com slash born ready to find out how you can enroll in the Born Ready course. I'm offering it to podcast listeners for just $97 if you enroll using the coupon code podcast. You can make this investment with absolutely no risk because you are covered by my 100% money back guarantee. If within a week of enrolling in the course, you don't feel uplifted, encouraged, and empowered to keep yourself safe, then just send me an email and I'll send you a refund. You and I both know that every woman is born to be a badass. We all have innate power and abilities, but we often don't know that they're there or we don't know how to unleash them. So enroll in Born Ready to feel ready, to be confident, and to live with the freedom that you deserve. Well, yeah, I actually, I'd like to ask you, like, I know that one of the things that you do is you teach people how to recognize how trauma is affecting their lives. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how can you actually become aware? I, I have a bit of a different way of going at it, I guess. I come at it from actually raising someone's level of consciousness i i believe for me i think a lot of us or look look at external things to help us sort out or meet unmet needs meet our unmet emotional needs so we look at external things for the solutions and actually we need to go within ourselves to understand ourselves to really make an impact and really make a difference rather than everything externally. 
So I do it slightly differently in the sense that I always like to work with the person where they are at. So I'm not coming in with, you've got to do, I mean, I have a process, I have a system, but I'm meeting them where they're at. So it's very a very person-centered piece of work. But we we start off by finding out what has been emotionally getting in their way. So what's hijacking their emotions? What's causing an emotional trigger? So what is it that they just do not want in their life? It's no more complicated than that. What do you not, what do you not want? What do you not want to repeat? What is it that makes you feel sad, makes you feel heavy, makes you feel angry? These are all emotional triggers or emotional hijacking. So emotional triggers are when you get pissed off about something or you're angry about something and it lasts a day or a couple of hours. Emotional hijacking can last anywhere from, say, a day to a week to a month to a year. That's trauma for me in its full, full flow. So first of all, we look at, you know, what are the, what's tripping you up? I say, what is tripping you up? And then we think about actually, what is it that makes you happy? And it doesn't have to be things that are complicated. So for me, it's like eat cake. I love cake. <laughs> cake makes me happy. It's, it's an emotional experience. So it's not about setting goals. It's not about, you know, setting those big unachievable goals that people say to set. It's more about energetic things that we can do to make ourselves happy. And that will develop on the journey. But then what I get people to do is I get them to really wake up to what they're doing during the day. So, you know, what keeps them in flow, what takes them out of flow, what the, could they do to put their best foot forward, what, what's getting in their way and how they can acknowledge the small achievements that they have done throughout the day. So they make a list of those different activities over five days. But then what we do is we pick out in the column of what's what's taking you out of flow we pick the one that is showing up the most and then we start to work on the one that is showing up the most so we then move into a self-coaching piece of work which explores that individual can explore what's coming up first so all of the others are not dealt with just that one that is showing up the most and getting in their way the most and taking them out of flow the most and making them unhappy. We mm-hmm. explore that one first in a self-coaching process, which helps them in that process. It helps them to connect the dots between their experiences in the past so they create a fresh perspective of where they are now and then they can make a conscious decision to change their behaviour along with some pattern interrupters that they create to stop. It's all a bit complicated to stop. But I just said it was simple, but what's underneath it is complicated. (laughs) (laughs) To stop that internal chatter that is going on in their head, which is going to work so hard to try and take them back into what it is that they were doing before. Because the brain, the ego... The unconscious just is work. It's doing its job. It wants you to stay safe. So it's, it's a big process that we go through. 
and there's a lot that sits underneath it. But once you start addressing the ones that are showing up the most, and then you really wake up to, oh my God, I can actually make a decision about this. And I can see why I behave the way I do without going into the trauma, without going into the actual event, more of Mm. a, oh yeah, that happened. Oh yeah, that happened. Not a, oh, let me go in, let me feel it, let me engrossiate myself in it. Just so the brain is able to understand and see, ah, that's why what it is I do. That makes a ton of sense to go at it that way. And and one of the things that I really like about that is, you know, you were talking a little bit a while ago about the sort of how overwhelming it can be when there's so many things that have happened. And I just picking the one thing that is having the most effect on your life right now and dealing with that. I mean, number one, like if you can work through that one, it proves that you can work through things and then it probably helps with taking on the next one and the next one. Yeah. But also what a sense of freedom and power must come from, from actually going through the process with that one big thing and realizing that you can make a change. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And trauma shows up in such bizarre ways that we wouldn't connect. You wouldn't necessarily connect not getting a job promotion with trauma. And yet, when you start to go back and look at your experiences and why that might be happening in your role within that, that is absolutely, that can be life-changing. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And it, can you talk a little bit about how going through this process changes your sense of self-esteem and self-worth? Because yeah, it must be massive. A, yeah, that's a really good question because I think I, I, I mull over self-esteem and self-confidence quite a lot because I think, and there's also confidence in there as well. I think what happens is, is women have a tendency, they have the confidence, they absolutely have the confidence to do things, but they lack the self-esteem, the value of how they see themselves, which then stops them from actually using the confidence to do what it is that they they want to do. So when you start reconnecting with and connecting with the part that is able to acknowledge to forgive, to comfort the child, the young woman, the young adult that had that experience, you naturally start to see a different side of your personality. You start to recognize actually that it it wasn't your fault. It was completely out of your control. And then you can start to recognize who it is you are as an individual. And I think that process, that healing process starts to build your self-esteem, self-worth. You connect with yourself from a very, from a loving, a compassionate, a forgiving, more powerful, empowering mindset rather than, you know, the victim. I hate the word victim, but Mm -hmm. the, the person who has experienced that trauma 
is very is a very different person to the person who's able to look at it from a different perspective, who's able to give compassion, who's able to give love. And then it just becomes part of your healthier identity, your healthier personality. Because I think trauma's got its own personality. Once it takes over, once it gets, once it gets some hold, you have to like manage it and shrink it. I don't think you can ever get rid of it. I think you don't have any emotion around an experience and you can, it just shrinks. It becomes, it becomes smaller. It can't disappear. It shouldn't disappear because it's part of who you are. It's part of your, your experience. And if you try to shove it under the carpet, you're just um, denying part of your personality, I think. So it naturally just builds and builds and builds as you're exploring and understanding more about who you are, the decisions you make. Yeah, it sounds like the trauma loses its power as you go through this process and you gain power. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can, you gain a completely, you gain, I think, for me personally, it's a more compassionate way of seeing things so when i was experiencing trauma i was always you know black or white right or left right or wrong there was no color there was no there was no middle ground when you start healing and recovery you start to move into the middle you start to move into see more color so that heavy emotion the heavy emotions that trauma creates, the heaviness of it stops to lift. So you start to become a lot lighter. You can experience a lot more joy. You can experience a lot more happiness because it, it's more in your control. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, it's really neat. So, so I imagine that, you know, when you were going through those early years and, and, and suffering such a wide variety of abuse and trauma. You were also sort of immersed in fear. Yeah. So how, how did you learn how to cope with fear? And like what, what tools do you have for helping people navigate through fear? That's, that's one of my favorite topics is yeah. how you navigate through fear. So, so what was that like and how do you do that? Yeah, I don't think I even knew I was in survival. I don't think I knew I was even frightened. I was a fighter. As soon as I came out of the womb, I was a fighter. No matter what I faced, I fought. <laughs> you know, I, um, even, um, while I was working, it's funny when you speak to other people that have suffered from trauma, they're also fighters as well, which is, I need to explore it more. Um, so even when I was working, I, cause I'm dyslexic, I faced a lot of dyslexia discrimination while I was at work and took a few, quite <laughs> a number of employers to, I've forgotten what the word is, to call for disability discrimination. So I was fighting then. And did I really need to fight if I knew what I know now? Probably not because it's a lot of stress. It's a lot of anxiety. It's, it's, not an easy job, not an easy task, not a pleasant task either. How I deal with fear is I I think for me, I had to realize that fear 
isn't real, that fear is actually an illusion of the mind that has been created from my experiences of the past that are out of date. So for me, I work on things consciously. So I will journal and I have a very specific way of journaling. I connect with my higher self. So that's the very, very best version of myself. I have a deep connection with her. And then the person who's experiencing the fear and the trauma is me now in the here and now with the baggage. And then what I do when I'm journaling is I will have a conversation between my higher self and who I am with the baggage. And I will use my higher self to nurture me with what I'm experiencing now. And I will self-coach myself by having a conversation between the two different parts of my personality. So I've separated them. So my higher self can be adult, only got my best interest, got no baggage, and then the traumatized person who's dealing with the fear. So what I'll do is I'll have a conversation, we'll have a conversation in writing. And I really recommend writing because it, it just helps really connect at a much deeper level in the psyche when you are using your hand to write on pieces of paper. And it doesn't matter how scruffy it gets. But then what I'll do for my higher self is I will also take the time to connect with me as a child, me who was having the experience of what was creating the fear. And I will have a conversation to check in to see what level of my identity, what level of my personality was holding on to the trauma so we can all come together in the conversation discuss it, acknowledge it, release the pain of it, and then make a decision as to how we want to move on. What is it that I want to believe moving forward? And I use, so I, with my clients, what I do is I get them to think about qualities of other people or other things that they want to embrace. So when we make the decision to move forward, we are picking from a list of qualities that we want to move into. So my book's called Be More Wolf. So for me, I love wolves. And I looked at what what are the characteristics that wolves have? So, you know, they're incredibly strong. Failure doesn't bother them. There's all sorts of these strengths that I like. So I can then pick the strengths that I want to move into that are going to empower me to move past the fear. So it's quite, it's, I was going to say, it sounds like quite a big bit of work, but once you get used to doing it, it is, it's, it's incredible because you can just see things from a different perspective and realize that the fear is in your head. Mm -hmm. But the head is incredibly powerful. Yes. It's incredibly powerful. And what it's showing you, it believes is real, but it only believes it's real because it's learned the wrong way. So you need to reprogram your brain and relearn how you want to see things in the here and now. So it's a real conscious piece. It's a very conscious piece of, piece of work. But what I love about it is that you don't need a therapist. You don't need a counselor. You can just do it on the toilet if you want to 
you know, it's you're not constrained by oh, I've got to wait a week to see somebody and talk about it. You can just do it. You can self coach yourself, which is so. I I think other therapeutic interventions are great, but I don't think there is anything better than you being able to access your internal resources and really help yourself and connect to the truth of who it is you are. No, nothing for me has helped me more than that. Mm, it's so powerful. And and I I do love what you're saying about, you know, this is already in you. You're capable of this. You don't have to look outside yourself because of course that's something that I talk about all the time when it comes to how you keep yourself safe. You know, don't you don't yeah. have to look outside yourself. No. And the thing is, we know, I know when I'm talking to myself, so my higher self, if I think I'm trying to get away with something, I will say to myself, hang on a minute, let's just go back to that and have a look at that. A therapist wouldn't do Mm -hmm. that. A counsellor would not do that. They would not dare, I think, challenge yourself the same way. But the thing is here, and this is really important, is that... When you do this piece of work, when you do any piece of inner work, you have to set boundaries of love, compassion, forgiveness, acceptance. Mm -hmm. You will really come at it from caring, from love, not anger, not judgment. You, you You have to set a boundary and container for the way you want to talk to yourself that is going to help you heal not add more criticism, not add more judgment. Yes. Well, that has to stop. It has to stop because it's toxic. It's feeding, it feeds on itself. Yes. Well, it's funny that you, that you brought that up because the next thing I wanted to ask you about was boundaries. Like, yeah. What are your thoughts on boundaries and, and how do you know which ones you need to set and what do you do when they get breached? And like, what, what are you, tell me your take on boundaries a really interesting one i've never thought i think of it in terms of a um so one of the boundaries i learn again it's that you have for me it's i'm very kinesthetic i have to learn by doing i have to see and then and then learn i didn't a, a friend of mine she her expertise is around charisma and she did this experiment with an apple whereby you had an apple, you cut it in half, and then you put one half in one jar and you put one half in the other jar. And then you shout love things at the love jar and you shout hate things at the hate jar, which both pieces of apple are in. And you do this for a week. And the love jar looks as, as if it was when you put the apple into the jar, but the hate jar goes moldy. It's, it's uh-huh. quite incredible quite incredible. So for me, I think what that was the first time I really learned to set a boundary for myself. And I, I remember it so vividly. And that boundary was that from forward, it's like giving up smoking, <laughs> to um, not talk bad to myself again. That was it. Because as soon as I saw, I just remembered the apple in my head. And I was like, oh my God, if I talk to myself, critically, badly, emotionally beat myself up, then I'm going to turn into that apple. Yeah, it's Um, such a powerful illustration 
of it's, it was it was mind yeah. blowing. So one of my biggest boundary is about love, compassion, forgiveness, kindness to yourself, and to stop as soon as you can any negative self talk, self talk, criticism, harshness you have towards yourself because that ultimately is just going to keep you stuck in a loop of self-destruction well and if you talk to yourself that way and you allow that kind of negative emotion you know within yourself towards yourself it's very easy to let other people do the same thing to you yeah absolutely and i always say i've always said it that if you allow yourself to talk to yourself like that, you would have been arrested and put into prison if it was someone talking to you that way. Mm -hmm. Because it's a form of violence towards yourself. Yeah. It's an, it's a form of assault. It's a form of violence might be too strong a word, but it's definitely a form of assault. So if you were in a domestic violence relationship and your partner was talking to you that way, and I've been, I used to work in uh, police custody as an appropriate adult, which meant I would go in and sit on on interviews and make sure that we call them prisoners in the UK, which I don't quite like. So not really prisoners. I would make sure that person's rights were being adhered to. And I have been in interview rooms where guys have been talking to their partners this way. And they have, in the end, served jail time. Because they haven't realized what they're doing. So they've actually served jail time for talking to their partners the way that a victim can talk to themselves and abuse themselves. Mm -hmm. It's how, that's how serious it is. It's just we don't realize that because it's become such a norm and we're so used to it that actually that isn't how it should be. Well, also, you know, when, when women are in situations intimate partner situations where there is no physical abuse being done but it's all verbal emotional manipulation coercion and control and that kind of thing a lot of people i mean yeah. people are getting more educated now but for a very long time people would just say well i mean that's not domestic violence right you're not being hit Without realizing yeah. the impact of the verbals and the emotional manipulation and the gaslighting and all of that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's about yeah. time that we started recognizing that, you know, that that old saying of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is absolutely false. Yeah, com completely false. In my journey of dys dyslexia discrimination, and, you know, we were talking earlier on about what how do I, what's my, how do I perceive trauma? And tra trauma to me is when you start changing your behavior because you're in fear of, in fear of something, that something's going to happen if you, if you don't change your behavior. So domestic violence is pretty much like that. Mm -hmm. You know, that verbal abuse, you will start changing your behavior to, to make sure you don't get a, a slap or, you know, screamed at or, and when that is layer on layer on layer on layer, it that's concerning. That is really, really worrying. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I saw, I can't remember where, but in, in your social media things about 
recovering from trauma was a mention of a survival mindset. What is that? Yeah. Can, you, can you sort of dig into that a little bit? Yeah. You know me. I mean, I, I'm going to gravitate towards things that have to do with survival <laughs> and with mindset. So you put the two together yep. and I'm like, oh, I want to yep. hear about this one. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. You have horses, don't you? I do. Yeah, I have four. Yeah. Yeah. In England, we have these horses called Shire horses. They're absolutely massive. I don't know if you've heard of Shire horses. Yes, they're huge. They are huge. And they used to pull the old, I think it was um, coal carts in the olden days. And I don't know if you have them. I don't like them, but they used to use the, they use them on police horses back home now, but they have these blinkers that fit mm-hmm. over the eyes. So the horse can't see right or left. It can only see what is in front of it. So the horse can only see what's in front of it. So it's only got a certain level of vision. It can't get distracted by anything that is on the right or left. For me, when I'm in full on survival mode, I can only see what's in front of me. So I can only deal with what's in front of me. I can't see. I don't have access to all the stimulation, everything else that is going on around me. So everything is done in, I guess, level of emergency. You know, so for me, it would have been getting that paycheck, working, making sure I still had a job. That's the only thing I was focused in on because that meant I could survive. I'd have a roof over my head. I'd have food. So I could only deal with what was urgent, what was coming into my world in the here and now. So that blocks you having a level of experiences that most people have in their everyday life because they're not focused in on trying to survive day to day to day. So for me, it was very much about being blinkered and looking in one direction. This is where the workaholic came in and surviving day to day with that level of focus. So for me, it closed everything off around any possibilities, any opportunities. I was just narrow minded and just looking in one direction, wasn't able to see. I still have side effects of it now, only doing jobs that were high risk, you know, jobs where things had to be done instantly. So just constantly moving, never, never sitting still, never, never resting. So for me, it's about that blinkered outlook on life. That's really interesting because you know, the the positive aspect of being able to sort of restrict your vision and just hone in on something and focus on it is that you can get a lot done. But that's when you're making yeah. a healthy choice to do that. But when it's a yeah. it's basically a survival function, it's like there is so much going on and I feel like I'm under attack and really all I can manage is this one thing that like right here, right in front of my face, this is the thing that's gonna keep me alive. You know, that's yeah. a completely different way of of using focus and of shutting everything else out. And you know what you said about like you just you miss you miss not just opportunities, but but you miss engagement in life, and you miss insights, and and you miss resources that actually could help you because you're just yeah, it's horrendous. yeah, it's horrendous. yeah. Wow. <laughs> 
Well, yeah. when it <laughs> it's done, yeah. and it still happens. I still notice that I do it because I've just see. This is the thing about trauma: is you you think you're over something, and then there's something else that pops up. Um, so I don't. I think you just learn to deal with the next thing that 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 the effect of what comes up. But I was learning to ride a bike recently, and <laughs> it's never too late. <laughs> I was right, learning to ride a bike at fifty-two, and what I realised when I was riding the bike was I was really struggling because survival makes you look at literally what is in front of you. When I was on the bike. I could only look a couple of meters ahead. And when I was only looking a couple of meters ahead, I'd fall off a lot. So I fell off, I fell off like five times while I was learning to ride. I didn't hurt myself. I don't know how I didn't hurt myself, but I didn't probably because I was going too slow. And then when I started applying the techniques I've learned, which is to understand that, you know, fear is, fear is an illusion. And then I started to realize that actually this is, how I react when I'm be- be- feeling fearful. I started to sing to myself when I was on the bike and I started to have conversations with myself when mm-hmm. I was on the bike, loud, open singing and conversations on the bike. And that changed my level of vision. So when I'm on the bike, I have to, at the moment, sing or talk to myself to increase my level of vision. So I'm not in that fear survival i can only see a couple of meters in front of me mindset that's really interesting because the picture that's coming up in my mind is you know when we're in that fear state we constrict and we want to kind of contract down into that fetal position right um yeah which is definitely not helpful if you actually want to be in the world and moving through the world because you can't move very well in that state you have to be no. more upright <laughs> and open and to allow your body to actually function and breathe and do all those other things. So it makes so much sense to me. I mean, talking to yourself and singing, I used to do that with my horse because we would go out on trail rides nice. and she would get, she was nervous. So she would get really fast yeah. and sometimes the brakes and the steering didn't work very well. And I have such memories of singing row, row, row your boat to her to kind of slow everything down and to, you know, it was managing my anxiety about what if she bolts or what if she bucks me off, you know, but it was also she, as it turns out, she's a very auditory horse. And so she would listen and, you know, she kind of calmed down too. So I don't think that's a weird thing to do at all. (laughs) That's a, a very wise, you know, it's a great, it's a great tool to use. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. For me, it just helps me manage mm-hmm. the fear. So when I'm panicking in my head and that voice is coming in going, Oh my God, you're going to fall off. Oh my God, there's a car coming. Oh my God, there's a monkey. Oh my God, you know, there's a dog. Uh, whatever is, that's just fear. It's that is pure fear. That's my survival mind trying to get out of the way of a risk that is a risk. Yep. Yeah, so I always think when you connecting with experiences in the past, you're connecting with trying to make decisions in the here and now, but you are 
using the past to make the decisions that you want to make in the future. I think a lot of those decisions when you are traumatized are coming from, you know, faulty wiring. They're coming from experiences that may not have been in your best interest. So the decision you will make if you're making it based from the past is not going to go in your favor. So I always say that you want to make decisions as consciously as possible. Question absolutely everything. And then make your decision based on that either self-coaching and the conversation that you've had with yourself to check in and make sure that your past isn't overly influencing your future. I love that. That's that's where the power is. That's, that's awesome. I, I love that perspective. And that's really the, the whole point of the work that you do. Yeah. It, I mean, I used to call it conscious coaching. I used to call what I do the conscious coaching toolbox, but that really is the tool. <laughs> that's what I say to yes. my clients. Don't do the, don't market the tools. Uh, then when I started to realize actually the power was in my story and I adapted it then to the trauma recovery method, then it made sense. Yes. And and so, and this is what led you to writing your book. So I would love yeah. for you to share a little bit about the book and, and also the gift that you have for listeners, because I think everybody's going to want to jump on that. I know I do. So can you just talk a little bit about, about what the book is and what you're sharing? Yeah. So the book is a combination of my story, my perspective on trauma. And how I've navigated the complexity of it. And it's also bringing into explaining the key cornerstones that make up the trauma recovery method that people can use to start just exploring, start exploring whether they are suffering from some level of trauma. And it's This methodology that I've created is really based on peak performance. So it's only ever going to pull out what you're struggling with now. It's not going to delve into things that you think are going to show up that you knew nothing about that are going to be worse than, because this is a fear for a lot of people, that's going to be worse than what you already know. So I'm taking you on a journey in terms of my personal journey, what I've experienced, how it's impacted my behavior. And, you know, some of the mishaps I've had during that time and then going into just touching on the steps you can use to start the process of recovery and and healing. So you can actually connect with who you really are. It sounds a bit cheesy because everybody says it, but it's so important to really get a sense of who are you without trauma it is that you've experienced, not with the trauma that is going to consume you in every day life. So it's about making friends with your trauma. That's and it. What's, what's the title? What's the title of the book? Yeah, so it's called Be More Wolf, A Survivor's Story, Breaking the Cycle of Trauma. Awesome. And then I believe that you are sharing the first chapter of your book with our listeners so can you tell them how to go and find that yeah if you pop over to 
conscious coaching cons- conscious coaching and mentoring.com forward slash book you'll be able to just pop your name and email address in there and then I will send you at the moment it will be a pdf version of the first chapter because I'm still bringing the actual book together I think the first chapter <laughs> will probably the I'm hoping touch wood will be the hardest chapter to write because that is the story. Yeah, so consciouscoachingandmentoring.com forward slash book. So you'll be able to access that currently as a PDF. Oh, that's great. And and it's great to be able to get a taste of what's coming. But I'm sure that that'll just create a lot of anticipation for like, when do I get to read the rest? Where When do I get the rest of the journey and the tools? So that's, that's great. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. It's been great to speak to you. Well, I have one more question before we wrap up. Awesome. All right. So how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? I think it's by, you know, what we've been talking about, which is about actually taking the time to stand still and to invest time into getting to know yourself and using your own resources to help you make the decisions of how you are going to be moving forward and managing your life because that has such a profound effect on you your family you know your your significant others your friends your work it 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 touches on every aspect of your life because ultimately your happiness is what's important at the end of the day and if you can learn to take some time to stand still, self-evaluate, really connect with how you're making decisions that are influencing your life, I think that's, for me, that's key now. Yes, uh, to, to actually be conscious of what is driving your decisions and your path. I, I can't think of anything that's more powerful than that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Wendy, this has been great. Before we wrap up, can you just share how people can find you? Because I'm sure that there are going to be a lot of people who want to learn more about you and, and hear from you some more. So where can you be found out in the world? Yeah, so you could drop me an email at wendy at consciouscoachingandmentoring.com or you could, I'm on LinkedIn as Wendy Keir, Facebook as Wendy Keir, Instagram as trauma recovery or the trauma recovery method. Gosh, I need to check that. But if you do Wendy Kira, it will come up on Instagram. So you can find me on most of the social platforms, including YouTube. But if you type in Wendy Kira into Google, you'll, you'll find me because I've got so much content online. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we will have links to all of those places and also to the the link to get that first chapter of your book all in the show notes so that it's easy to to get there. So thank you so much, Wendy. This has been very informative and really interesting. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to get together today and that you let me ask you so many questions. Awesome. I loved it. Thank you. (laughs) This has been the born to be a badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. 
You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence and safety, life after trauma, and how to build personal power and courage. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members, and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.